We uh, continue in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Philippians. If you'd make your way to the book of Philippians, I tell you, it, it seems as if every Bible book through which I preach, uh, in, in fact, it doesn't seem, it's the case. I get into it and I think, I know this book. I, I've got a handle on this. Uh, I've been doing this for pushing four decades. That's not, that's not saying I know it all or anything. I'm not saying that. It's just that I, I go into it fairly comfortably and, uh, and have a good working knowledge of it. Could tell you uh, just off the top of my head, uh, the general theme, the author, the, the, uh, the time frame, the context, and that kind of thing, as many of you could as well. And then every time I get into it, I think, I'm clueless. <laughs> Why was I thinking I knew this? Um, isn't that the living nature of the Word of God? It's fresh all the time, perpetually fresh and challenging. And that is no less the case this morning. Last week we studied chapter 3 verses 4 through 11. Well, kind of 4 through 11. Really 4 through 9 and just touched on verses 10 and 11 with the message last week I titled, Do Not Trust Self. Not only does that apply to salvation, don't trust self, it applies to Christian living because it's always by faith from beginning to end. That being said, that does not mean that we should sit back and do nothing, not at all. Uh, Today, we pick up that thought with a message titled, I am a member of Christ. And I like what Robert Gurmacki wrote, not the professor at Calvary, his father, who said, getting saved is like getting married. It is just the beginning of a growing, knowing, and sharing relationship. And so, as a married couple, you are members one of another. And so, too, with Christ. You are a member with him. You are in him. You are found in him. He's the head. You're the body. That type of principle. Theologian William Hendrickson commented, as long as one keeps clinging, even to the slightest degree, to his own righteousness, he cannot fully enjoy Christ's righteousness. The two simply do not go together. The one must be fully given up before the other can be fully appropriated. If you are holding on to any of your own effort, your own goodness, and hoping to have right standing with God in salvation, it cannot happen because he will not share his glory with another. Amen? It's all of him or none of him. And so too in your Christian walk. If you're gutting it out, I can do this. I can defeat this temptation. Uh, I, I can overcome this issue. Then the Lord seemingly is willing to let you, okay, you go ahead and carry that load. If you are strong enough to walk through this world with your strength and your effort, I'll let you take a try at it. And of course, how often do you fail in that? always. If you are trying to live righteously in your own effort, it cannot happen. And we understand that sometimes we're tempted to go back to it. 
And so that's chapter 3, verses 4 through 9 primarily. Today, we study just two verses. I tried to have a study five. But by the time I got to verse 12, we were already into this for an hour and 45 minutes, the message, and I thought maybe I ought to back off a little bit. So I did. I opted to do that so that we could take a deeper dive today into verses 10, 11, because just touched on it last week. You'll remember that. And so, Philippians chapter 3, for the two most difficult verses so far in Philippians, we'll take a run at it. Verses 10 and 11. But picking up for the context in verse 9, summarizing what had just been covered, and be found in him. I want to be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law. I, don't, I can't have that. But that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now that is a great summary of what we've been studying now for some time which then goes into the practical nature of verses 10 and 11. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Today, I've titled the message, I am a member of Christ, and I've intentionally not titled it, we are members of Christ. Aren't all believers members of Christ? Yes. Why would I have titled this, I am a member of Christ, instead of we are all members of Christ? It's because the focus in these two verses is very much, in fact, exclusively on the individual Christian. Say, how do you know that? The various parts of speech that are used, the nouns, the verbs, the the participial phrases, when there is any type of of person indicated, every one of them, in fact, in these uh, these verses, going down through verse 14, 10 times first person singular is used. It's not about the editorial we, not these verses. It's not about the editorial we, it's about the personal me. And you'll see that in verses 10 through 14. In fact, you'll see it even more often in, the, in verses 12, 13, and 14. But the whole context is about me as a believer, me as an individual, and what I long to see happen in my life for the cause of Christ. So the context is very much about me and not so much emphasis on the collective we. Two primary points if you're taking notes. First of all, spiritual intimacy with Christ begins with justification. Alluded to it already, talked about it last week, but I just thought about this week. Folks, when I was lost, and and maybe you can identify with this, I didn't have a clue of what a relationship with the Lord meant. I only understood, to some degree, religion. That is, you pile up your good works, uh, and you're going to have your bad works, and hopefully the good works uh, will outweigh the bad, and things will somehow all pan out in the end if you're a good religious person. As long as you're sincere in what you believe, and that kind of a thing. I, did, I was clueless of what it meant that God, by His Spirit, resides within the child of God. Do you recognize that? That as a follower of Christ, 
God lives within you, right? If that's an amazing thought. That is an amazing concept that you tabernacle with God the Spirit. That God the Spirit tabernacles with you. In fact, it says in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, in whom also you trusted, that is Christ, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after uh, that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who's the earnest? He's the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, that is until all of you, body, soul, spirit, is redeemed and in his presence and, the, and unto the praise of his glory. And so you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. In fact, Romans 8 and verse 9 makes that even more emphatic, even more clear when it says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. That person is none of the Lord's, and the Lord is none, none of his. In other words, you don't have him. So if you are saved, the Spirit of God does, in fact, dwell within you. You literally have the Lord residing in you. Well, it can't get any more intimate than that. Intimacy, spiritual intimacy, begins with justification, that God literally lives within you. Uh, And of course, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time and at all times. And so his spirit resides within your spirit. He has taken up residence inside of you, inside of me. Robert Gramacki wrote on this, there's a difference between objective and personal knowledge of a person. The former deals with the facts about a man, whereas the latter stresses intimate acquaintance. That's what verse 10 is talking about, that I may know him. Well, it it begins with the intimate relationship of him dwelling within you. That is truly an amazing thing, that spiritual intimacy with Christ begins the moment you are redeemed and the Spirit of God inhabits you. And so I must know him uh, relationally before I can know him experientially. I must be justified before I can ever walk down that path of sanctification. Gerald Hawthorne, a theologian, wrote about knowing the Lord Jesus. He said, it suggests that for Paul, just the coming to know Christ outweighs all other values. That for him, the significance of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, is so vast that even to begin to know him is more important than anything else in the world. So the Apostle Paul, speaking in the first person singular, says, not uh, I want to know him in the sense of being redeemed because he was a believer. I want to experientially know him more and more and more. I want the intimacy, the freshness of the intimacy, the awareness, the experience of the intimacy to grow more and more every day. You all who have been married uh, for decades know this to be true. That it's, it, it truly is. Year after year, decade after decade, you become more one. I mean, you're one by virtue of position. You're declared one the moment you say, I do, and the preacher says, uh, you are married. But you grow in that oneness. You grow in the awareness of that oneness. 
uh, that one uh, uh, year after year, decade after decade. That is, if it is a uh, fresh, uh, healthy relationship. So, spiritual intimacy with Christ begins with justification, but it continues through sanctification. And that's just a big word, meaning you are growing in your holy walk with the Lord. You are growing up in Him. You are growing in your intimacy in Him. To be justified is to be spiritually born. To be sanctified or to be in the process of sanctification is to be growing in that maturity. It's the day-by-day intimate growth. Now here in verse 10, there are three ways, Paul said, that I long to know him. I, I, I long to see the intimacy uh, deepened and fresh and healthy uh, uh, and growing and vital. And he identifies these three particular ways, if you'll notice in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The first thing he says is I want to know. I want to experience resurrection power. He didn't say I want to experience Christ's resurrection because that already had happened. He was raised from the dead. You have he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. So he had already experienced that. What he wanted was the experience of the daily uh, surrendered life. He wanted to experience supernatural power. Now think about it. There isn't any power, uh, not, uh, not even creation is as powerful as the resurrection of Christ. Because the resurrection of Christ is uh, that the one who was, and the only one who was the acceptable sacrifice died, actually died, and was bearing the sin and the penalty. He was put away in the tomb, and three days later, that is, he's dead, and he's totally dead, just in case there were any question, i.e., uh, the, uh, uh, the, the issue with Lazarus, by now he is rotting, and that didn't happen to Jesus, for his flesh would not see corruption. He died, but he rose again. Uh, that is infinite power for that to happen. The Apostle Paul said, that's the kind of day-to-day power I want to experience. It's the kind that's otherworldly. It's the kind that cannot be explained through human effort. I can't gut it out. I can't think it out. I can't strategize my way out of this situation. But I can sure depend on the power of God reigning and ruling through my life. He was praying that that would be the case for him. I want resurrection power. I want that kind of power to touch my life. Folks, it takes God to resurrect us out of spiritual darkness. And so, too, it takes God to empower us to walk through this life victorious and for his glory alone. And Paul prayed that. He prayed that for the Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, verses 18 and 19, he says, I'm praying that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. That is, you'd be able to see that you may know what is the hope of his calling. That is the absolute assurance of his calling on your life. And what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That is that you would, that you would really come to understand what you have in him. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. 
according to the working of his mighty power. Now, that, uh, uh, that's, taking it up to, that's taking it up exponentially. Think about that. It says that you would know his power. And let me add on top of that. According to the working, that's the word for energy, uh, that speaks of power, of his mighty power. Not just any old power, but of his mighty power. Not that you just know uh, power, but that you would know his mighty power. I'm taking it up uh, uh, exponentially, he's saying. In other words, it's infinite because it cannot be produced by man. You see, you cannot give forgiveness to yourself or to anyone else. You can't generate that, but he can by his power, amen? As you by faith lay hold of that, you claim that, you, uh, uh, you appropriate that, you cannot forgive another soul, which is why... Uh, the, uh, the Lord's Prayer is meant to show, I believe, it, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you, have, you will not have eternal life. Uh, and what was part of that Sermon on the Mount? The Lord's Prayer. And what does the Lord's Prayer say? Uh, it says, forgive us to the degree that we've forgiven others. Can you, can a lost person ever completely forgive someone in the way that God forgives of course not. So not only uh, is it not uh, a, uh, uh, an attribute to which we're to ascend, it's a, con- it's a word of condemnation. You can't do that. Only God can forgive. So uh, only God can forgive the believer and God's power in us, in uh, allowing us to forgive one another. Just by way of example, I, I fumbled over that. The point is, it's his power that allows us to die to self uh, and to, in fact, walk by faith. Um, it's what Paul told uh, the Romans in chapter 6 and verse 11. It's this. You need to reckon. You need to count this as truth. You need to count this as a done deal if by faith you'll lay hold of it. That you yourselves are dead unto sin but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You do not have to sin as a... Remember, this text is about me. It's about you, the individual. You do not have to live in sin. In fact, if you do, you're a fish out of water because it's not your new nature. Your new nature is created in righteousness and true holiness. And so you're dead to that old way. The old man is crucified. And you've been given new life in him. And the power to live that life. The Apostle Paul prayed, God, that I would grow and grow more and more in resurrection power. He said, I want to know that. And then notice also in verse 10. It's not just to know the power of his resurrection, but to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to experience comforting partnership comforting partnership that's the word fellowship a partnership a shared experience with him and and Paul didn't have a death wish nor was he a glutton for pain or anguish and and by the way uh, you're you're not spiritual and I'm not spiritual because uh, uh, I fast and therefore it's causing me pain and I'm suffering so look at how spiritual I am no 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 a million times no there's no pain, uh, uh, death wish, or, or, or longing for, for uh, pain and suffering. 
It's simply that there is a willingness to suffer for him because I know that in my suffering for him, his grace will be, how sufficient will his grace be? It will be all sufficient, utterly sufficient, or it won't. It either will be or it will not be. It'll be one or the other. It cannot be both. And I'm convinced, in fact, I'm convinced according to the word of God, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 and 9, that his grace is all sufficient. The apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, unless I should be exalted above measure, unless I'm built up in my pride, through the abundance of the revelations, look at what God has given me, all these Bible books uh, that uh, he's inspired me to write. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, some kind of physical uh, affirmity, it's believed, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, to hold me down, lest I should be exalted above measure. I should think too highly of myself. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice. Three times I prayed that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What is he saying? He's saying, I am comforted when I partner with him in his sufferings and what he experienced and what I'm experiencing now. And it may not be suffering only because of, of, of uh, somebody going after you, uh, someone hating you because you're a believer. It may be the sufferings uh, that we all experience in life, of physical, of, of uh, emotional, of relational, whatever it might be. If, because he can identify with all of us, right, in, uh, in our temptations and our struggles. And since he can identify with us, he is a merciful high priest. He cares for us. And so, I'm partnering with him in his suffering, and I am comforted in that. To the degree that Paul told this same church, 2 Corinthians 1.3, he says, God is the father of mercies, of all mercies, the God of all comfort. And so, whatever your situation is, pray to know him, pray to partner with him while you're suffering And that's in essence saying, Lord, bring comfort. You must bring comfort. You're the God of all comfort. So Paul prayed that I would know him in power over temptation, that I would know him more and more in comfort through suffering, trials and tribulations, and that, the end of verse 10, I'd be made conformable unto his death faithful to the end is how I summarize that very difficult verse interpreted all kinds of ways in fact I had you can ask Kathy I I had a stack of commentaries on verse 11 as well as some online to study this out to exegete this uh, and I mean it was a stack I could barely carry it was so uh, uh, there were so many and so heavy one of them had pages of five different interpretations on verse, the end of verse 11, uh, verse, end of verse 10. One had five different ones. <laughs> and all the other ones, 
Folks, if there's ever been any text of commentators all over the map and them from the same stream of thought generally, then this is the one. What in the world does it mean? I want to know him in being made conformable unto his death. Well, some would say that that's speaking of a child of God who can lose his or her salvation. Some would say it appears that Paul is doubting whether or not he will remain faithful to the end. Ergo, if he doesn't, then he will lose his salvation uh, and, uh, and be, be lost. And of course, at this church and uh, among you all, that is absolutely not what verse 11, uh, verse 10, the end of verse 10 uh, teaches, and verse 11, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection. And those two are tied together. Verse, at the end of verse 10, uh, be made conformable unto his death, any means I might attain unto the resurrection from the dead. It certainly doesn't mean that you are going to lose your salvation or even potentially uh, worry about that. You say, well, how do you know that? Because of the volume of biblical data we have from the very same writer, the Apostle Paul, which says there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? And the very same writer who said, nothing shall be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You cannot lose your salvation if you're genuinely saved. He's not saying that. Okay, what is he saying? Well, it's good and helpful, I think, to bring a little bit of the exegesis to the table right now. That phrase uh, in verse 11, um, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, is literally the outrising out of the lifeless. It is, uh, it is a little bit, it seems a little bit redundant, but I think it's redundant for sake of emphasis. Walk through it with me. Don't, this is not the time for the shades to come down, okay? Uh, if you need to stand up, do some jumping jacks, uh, don't do that. <laughs> do something else. If you're, if you're a little bit sleepy and you're getting a little bit dreary on this exit, Jesus, uh, tell the person next to you, would you pinch me real hard on the si- in the side? No, don't do that. Just be self-disciplined to, to lock in. Um, the phrase uses the preposition ek, out of or from, uh, in two different places. In fact, it is, this is the word for resurrection, but it's out of the resurrection And it is out of the dead or out of the lifeless. And so it is saying that there is something happening from or away from. Because it it uses that that preposition or that prefix of of the word. And it uses it in two ways. What's more, there are two definite articles here which means it's about a particular type of outrising. It's the outrising out of among the lifeless. And so you've got some real careful uh, 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 phrasing and syntax that the Spirit of God, and by the way, let me add a little bit more level of difficulty. This is the only place this phrasing is used in all the New Testament. So you can't go somewhere else. Believe me, I tried. 
to get any other help and insight of how, especially from, from Paul or from any other, there is, it's not there. So we stand alone on this phrase, and what in the world is Paul saying that I long to grow in intimacy relative to this, the outrising out of the lifeless? Well, it cannot be about spiritual resurrection, as I'd indicated, because he's already saved. So you can remove that. Some believe that it's actually a reference to the rapture of the church, the rapture itself, when the Lord will snatch away his church. I believe that is not quite accurate. That might surprise you, that I would believe that is not quite accurate. You, I, gotta be, I have to be true to the text, to the exegesis. And so, what is it, um, what is the correct view, at least as I see it? Verse 11 expresses Paul's desire, and it should be our desire, to continue to know and grow in intimacy with the Lord, even to the point of death, martyrdom, and be doing so at the point of his outrising from among the dead. Now, it could be the rapture of the church because, and I'll explain why it, that's very consistent Pauline thought, uh, because it could be that he will be one of those in, the, in his thinking, the generation which is raptured. But it could be his outrising from among the lifeless. Could be he's going to die Lost people are going to die, and one day he's going to be resurrected, and they're not going to be at that point. Uh, and so he's taken out from among the necros, the dead, who are around him. Um, I'm, <clears throat> my view is that that is his longing. That The issue is not the resurrection. The issue is his faithfulness. His longing to be faithful... Whichever event happens in his life. You all following that? Now, why didn't he know? Well, let me give you the chronology. Let me give you the time frame very quickly. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, written very early in Paul's ministry, says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them who are asleep, that is, those who have died, that you sorrow not, even as others who have no hope. You can sorrow, but don't sorrow like lost people. Why? Because we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so them also which sleep, or who have died in Jesus, will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. Just in case you had any question about who's communicating this, God by his spirit. That we who are alive, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them who are asleep. In Paul's mind, was he going to be living at the time of the Lord snatching away his church? Or was he in, in, in the writing of the first writing first Thessalonians, or was he going to have already died? He was going to be living. He thinks he is living. We who are alive and remain when the Lord takes home his church. We're not going to precede those who have already died. 
So in other words, there's a, 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 there's a, there's a, a timeline. Those who have died, they're going to be resurrected. Those who are alive, I'm convinced, are going to be taken away, raptured, um, removed, if you don't like the word raptured, removed from this earth. For the Lord, how's it going to take place? The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain. He is convinced that he's going to be alive at the time that this takes place. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is not his second coming, I'm convinced. The timeline is the rapture of the church, Daniel's 70th week, seven-year tribulation period, followed by the literal 1,000-year reign of Christ, followed by eternity, uh, followed by second coming and, and, and then eternity. We'll be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Okay, that was in 52, 53 or so A.D. It's really, there's it, a, a long, t- a long uh, uh, period of time, 49 to 52, 53 A.D., somewhere in that two or three year time frame. Now, notice how Paul's thinking, of course, by the Spirit of God, but he moved within the human author. Notice what he's thinking now in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 53. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, we shall be changed For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal shall uh, put on immortality. Just written a few years, three or four years after 1 Thessalonians. Are you following? So you've got 1 Thessalonians, 49, 50, 51, 52 AD. 1 Corinthians, 55, 56, 57 AD. And then our text in Philippians. Where our text in Philippians, he is now saying... I don't know when I'm leaving. I don't know when I'm going. I don't even know if I'm going with the living or the dead. He is losing confidence that he will be alive. He very well could be among the dead who are resurrected. But no matter which way you cut it, I want to be faithful to my earth, the end of my earthly pilgrimage. Whether it's by the upper taker or the undertaker. <laughs> Amen? I want to be faithful that I might know him, his resurrection power, his comfort in suffering, and that I would be conformable unto his death. Maybe, maybe I'll be here when he calls his church home. Maybe I will have been long gone for pushing 2,000 years. It was the latter, wasn't it? The Lord hasn't returned for his church yet, has he? He has not. And Paul's no longer around. And so, but his heartfelt desire, was it realized or not? Yes. 2 Timothy chapter 4, his last chapter ever wrote, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And not unto me, on, unto me only, but unto all them also who love his appearing. Who were looking for his return. So, folks, what does that tell us? 
in the 2 Timothy 4 text and the Philippians 3 verse 11 text, it tells us that the greatest way to be faithful to the end is to be looking every day for this being the end. It's to set your affection on things above, Colossians 3, I think it is. And as I do, I'm going to stay faithful because I'm not going to have happen what the Apostle John said, namely, beloved, we're children of God. It doesn't yet appear, it doesn't yet, it hasn't yet shown itself what we shall be. In other words, we're not in heaven yet, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And the very next verse says, um, maybe it's the verse right in front of it. I should have, I should have uh, 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 printed it. Verse 28 of chapter 2. Little children, when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not abide in him. That when we shall appear, we shall have confidence and not be ashamed. So if I'm going to remain faithful to the end, I'm convinced that Philippians 3, 10, and 11 is saying, I'm going to be part of the out-resurrection out of the dead, either through the rapture or I'll be resurrected when he calls his church home from among those others who have died who will not be resurrected until after the millennium. Please understand, everyone, every theologian I consulted, and there were many, have said, this is the most difficult verse in Philippians. I'm not looking for sympathy. I'm not looking for pity. What I'm saying is, it's hard to know definitively what it means. It means something. It means something in the realm of intimacy, for I may know him. It's something different than resurrection power. It's something different than comfort during suffering. And it has to do with death. Death is all over the place at the end of verse 10 and 11. And it has to do with resurrection from the dead. Not spiritual, because that took place at salvation. So it's talking about some type of physical resurrection from among those who are dead. The out of the dead. And it occurs to me that if I'm looking and longing for the return of the Lord, my life is going to be consistent with that hope and that longing. Amen? I'm going to desire to be faithful to the end. I am a member of Christ, therefore. Of course, we are members of Christ, but this is very, very personal, very individual. I'm done with this. Look, if you would, at verse 10, that I may know him. Verse 11, that I might attain. Verse 12, not as though I had already, but I follow after, if I may apprehend. Also, I am apprehended. Verse 13, rather than I count myself, everything I do. Verse 14, I press toward the mark. It's about you. This passage is about you. 
as an individual follower of Christ. Commit to long more and more for his power over temptation. Commit to lay hold of his comfort during trials. Commit to remain faithful to the end of your earthly pilgrimage, whatever that looks like, the upper taker or the undertaker. Those are your choices. Either way, you're fine. Because for me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. You can't lose. You can't lose. He takes you early. That is earlier than you would have thought. And you're in his presence. My, how many times uh, uh, have I talked about uh, with, uh, with Kathy's uh, mom's homegoing a few months ago. Uh, and, uh, and I've said, and I don't say it in a flippant way. She is doing more than just fine. Amen? Wouldn't trade places if given the opportunity. Never felt better. Never sang, sang like, she was a great singer. Never sang better. In his presence, you can't lose. <laughs> it's only win-win for the child of God. You stay here and serve him and bring him glory, or you go into his presence and are there in eternal bliss. Wow. We, this might be something we might want to share with folks. We just might want to share this message with others who don't know the glory of the gospel message. Lord, I'm so thankful for this time to study. Uh, Lord, best I know, uh, I don't know any more, any better than, than this. So thankful to be able to stand on shoulders of others over the cent- decades and centuries who, uh, who have good understanding, better than, than I do, in education and experience and all. And so, uh, but that's my heart. My heart is to know you to have power over temptation, to have comfort and glory for God during suffering, and to always be looking for you to take me into your presence. May each one of us who know you have that same heart attitude. And Lord, for those gathered who don't know you, and by way of internet, who who do not know you, may today, even now, by your Spirit, bringing conviction, be the day of salvation. Have your will and way in and through this time. We're going to stand.